This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly and Alex Steele here with you on a Wednesday morning. And we just talked a bit about some of the virus outbreaks that are going on. We're still, as a nation, as small communities, trying to get our arms around this. Where do we go from here? What effect is it going to have on the healthcare system and us personally, especially as we get into the fall and to, yep, flu season. All right. Don't say it. Um, Don't say it. I know. If you say it, it's true. (laughs) Have you you gotten a flu shot yet? They're they're not in yet. So I actually asked uh, someone about that today and they won't come in until the beginning of October. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of incoming to a lot of doctor's offices to figure that out. And I do wonder if local communities are going to be more proactive, you know, even in terms of like sending, you know, mobile units out and things like that. I mean, I think about it in part because I'm obviously, uh, you know, very well, because you're looking at me over video conference. I'm not in the office. I'm not in the studio with you. And I've relied on candidly Bloomberg, uh, since I've worked there to get my flu shot at the office. So um, I I think I'm not alone in that, not just in our company, but in a lot of companies that that's one of the ways that they've been uh, pretty effectively administered. Uh, yes, uh, they definitely have. Uh, but you can still come in just for like a day. Yeah, exactly. Make an appointment. Flu shot. Yeah. You know, All right. Let's uh, let's talk to a real expert uh, about this, and that is Dr. Renee Dua, founder and chief medical officer of Heal. Joining us on the phone from Los Angeles, they're in the telemedicine business as well as in-home doctor visits. This world has changed dramatically, uh, Dr. Dua. So tell us a little bit about what you're seeing, because people fair to say, are very concerned about their health and, and trying to get healthcare administered in new and different ways. Absolutely. I think what we're seeing is what you might have been talking about, which is a general sense of fear in getting uh, normal routine scheduled uh, needs handled. So, for example, vaccinations or mammograms, screening tests are not being done. And it is quite scary to see it. I think it's important that if you do have these basic needs that you have to take care of, getting a cholesterol test or having your doctor make sure you're getting colon cancer screening, you should pursue it and make sure that you are following up on those on those annual requirements depending on your age. Uh, the colonoscopy, I remember it if it was just three weeks ago. Um, so, so but, but, but to that point, um, is it safe? Like, how do you make it safe? How do you remember to get people back? So uh, how do you great, get people to take a, a flu time. shot? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, so for example, at HEAL, what we do is we come to you, right? There are certain things you, you don't need to leave the house for. When you're getting your annual physical, when we come to you, we'll bring the flu shot. But to your point, going to get a colonoscopy, everyone is going to be in a, a relatively sterile environment. They're going to be wearing gloves and eye gear and a mask, and so you should be relatively safe. Additionally, for colon cancer screening, and, and you know, we've, we've recently lost a, 
major celebrity at such a young age to it. So it's, it's worth a, a one-minute conversation on there are several ways to get screened for colon cancer. And one in particular allows you to mail stool in, it put, put some stool in your mail, literally, so that you never leave your house. It sounds pretty gross. On the other hand, if it keeps you safe, certainly it's worth it. So these are tests that doctors can order to help keep you home, but at the same time get your, your screening done. You know, Dr. Duo, we ask this question of a lot of people in a lot of businesses, and we think about it a lot in our own business. As you think about it, especially since since this is the, the operation that you've put together, what what changes sort of stick here in the sense that, you know, we talk about e-commerce and people are now used to buying things online. Are people going to, in a more permanent way, rely on telemedicine and, and other ways of healthcare delivery, even after we feel a bit safer? I absolutely think so. I think these these modalities are here to stay. I think that the, the scape of the city has changed more things do come to you. The expectation is that high-quality care should and can come to you. That's always what we've been reasoning at HEAL. And I certainly think if it means that access can be delivered, it is best practice to use the telephone or a video chat from a doctor's perspective to check in on your patients, make sure they are safe, make sure they have peace of mind. It's certainly better than not having any interaction with them at all. I think we need to go back to that poop in an envelope. I don't even know how that works. Yeah, yeah it's pretty it's pretty interesting. But you know, it's it's to this same idea that that everybody recognizes that patients need access and they need an easy way to make sure they're being taken care of. And so for another example, we deliver eye exams for those diabetics hmm. that need to have their eyes checked, we will show up and help them in the home. So there is more than one way to get the kind of care that you need in the house. It's a matter of, of taking charge and looking into it. And it's a matter of your doctor offering these services to the best of her ability as well. Video chats are a great way for me to take a look at you, ask you a lot of questions about your mental health, your physical health. Are you able to get around the house, but not necessarily be even in your living room or have you in an office setting at least you're seeing my face and you know that I'm providing comfort in some way. Yeah, that's a really good point. All right, stick with us. Dr. Renee Dua, founder and chief medical officer of HEAL, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. And, and that point of like even being, being able to see somebody, even on Monday when I wasn't feeling too great and I had a cold, like you could see through the video con, I was not doing great. I'm not going to lie to you guys. He did not look good. He looked worse than he sounded, and he sounded pretty bad. Yeah, so exactly. And now I look great. Now, but, I, now but sometimes you're you just like, gotta like get your hands on someone to be like, "Oh, this note is swollen," which yes, is hard to do, obviously. Exactly. Exactly. Can we just go back to how good I look? It's like now, a handsome so much better now. Over here. He's yeah. Color. I know. Looks so much great. hair. Just popping. Well, all right. Let's not go. <laughs> let's not go too far. All right. More with Dr. Renee Dua coming up. This is Bloomberg. Uh, all right, so let's get more into healthcare, particularly in this time of coronavirus with Dr. Renee Dua, founder and chief medical officer of HEAL. So, uh, Dr. Dua, you talked about sort of taking healthcare into people's homes. How do you do that for the lower income families? Because that has been highlighted so much uh, by what's happened with COVID. Yeah, absolutely. And so, in, in folks who might have a lower income, 
Um, what we try to do is keep relatively low cash pay prices. Um, when we do come and if we are delivering service that way, it doesn't affect the services we are able to provide. In other words, if we are delivering a physical, then we will show up as, as again, is required with the flu shot. So we don't really consider how a patient is paying for the service in the quality of care that they get. Each visit should be standardized so that the patient receives the same quality each time. One of the things we're also trying to do is spread out from more metropolitan dense areas into more surrounding areas so we can catch those patients who might not, quote unquote, be in the city, but do need access. And so that's another uh, consideration for, for various patients who do need access to care. You know, I do wonder also, and, and I think you're alluding to this, uh, Dr. Dewitt, you know, the, the modalities, as you said earlier, sort of the way we get treatment. I mean, urgent care, I feel like, has become a much more acceptable and available use. Mm-hmm. Like, what should people think about when they're figuring out, like, how to get healthcare delivered? Like, is, is there sort of a, like a flow chart of sorts where we, where we think about different things and, and, and the different ways to get that treatment? Absolutely. So for urgent or emergency issues, the the considerations would be, for example, you are so short of breath, right? You wouldn't be able to leave your house or even use the telephone. That would be a good time to use an emergency room. But a, a bad time to use an emergency room or an urgent care would be, for example, your medications are running out and you need, a, you need a medication refill or you have a chronic condition like diabetes or high blood pressure and you need to have a checkup. If you're taking care of children and they're due for their vaccinations or their physical before school starts, these would be poor uh, uses of an emergency room or urgent care visit. Many times, especially in current conditions, a doctor will do her best to actually attempt a physical by video chat. In other words, it's not the greatest that we can't examine you or listen to your heart or lungs. On the other hand, as I, as I mentioned, if we can see you and we can ask you a lot of those screening questions and at the very least order the tests that are necessary during your annual exam, then we at least have the peace of mind that 75% of what we need, 80% of what we need is getting done in a video interaction. And then maybe several months from now, you can see a patient in person uh, to, to ensure that that patient is in good physical shape based on examination. Oh, we don't have a ton of time, so I have a quick question. Does that mean more liability for doctors in that way? I think it's a great a great point, and I think us doctors are are constantly balancing what's best for our patients. On one hand, we do feel more comfortable when we have a patient in our presence and we can examine them thoroughly. On the other hand, we don't want our patients waiting for a disease process to get worse. And so we are going to jump on any opportunity to take care of them, and I feel like video chat might be a great compromise for now. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I do think one of the things we're learning is it's helpful to have an ongoing relationship with your physician. Mm-hmm. I think too many of us, you know, just think about it as a, oh, we in- immediately need something uh, and uh, we need more of an ongoing relationship and an ongoing sort of relationship to our own health. Thank you so much, Dr. Renee Dua, founder, chief medical officer for HEAL, joining us on the phone from Los Angeles. And yeah, it's, uh, it's a different world. Alex Steele. My mom has had like 
seven, eight, nine video chats with her doctor. They're like, they were like BFF before that, yeah. but now it's even like more so. She got invited right. to their next Seder after COVID. It's like a whole nice. thing. Nice. That's good. <laughs> so there you go. You know, I some a, a friend of mine told me, someone who had had a lot of experience, unfortunately, as a patient, told me that if you can't get to a, a relationship point with your doctor where you call him or her by their first name um, and it's an ongoing relationship, then you might need to move on. Oh, Is I didn't that know that was... A, that's a good qualification. Yeah. That, that and if I'll send you my frame. poop in the mail. Yes, If exactly. I won't do that, I have to rethink First it. First name and poop in the mail. That's... <laughs> listen, check, check. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Because uh, I'm excited to talk to Sean Donnan. Love him. He hasn't been on the show in a minute. As the kids say, senior trade and globalization reporter for Bloomberg, a terrific story in this week's magazine, Rust Belt Town's Loyalties Divide as Pennsylvania Turns Purple. He joins us on the phone, and we're also joined, as we are most days, by Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He joins us from Massachusetts. Joel, tee this up. This is, I dare say, a Sean Donnan special in many ways, like taking us to where the action's happening. So the, the, this week is our um, special election issue, and, and the framing that we, we use for this, we, we do it every four years, is not to talk about the candidates and the horse race, but to put the lens on America and focus on the electorate. And as we, as we sort of were talking to um, various people in the newsroom, Sean was like, by the way, I've been going to western Pennsylvania to a town called Ambridge, and you should definitely know about Ambridge. And, and that caught my attention. Um, Sean, why? What, what's happening in Ambridge? Well, it started off uh, in the spring when we started uh, getting the lockdown uh, with coronavirus. And I just really wanted to find one place in America that I wanted to track through this crisis. And uh, the place I settled on for a number of reasons, including the fact it's sitting in a pretty crucial part of of Pennsylvania politically, was, was Ambridge. It has this astonishing history uh, going back to the 19th century when it was actually called Economy Pennsylvania. Uh, and it was uh, the home of a, uh, a religious sect called the Harmonists, who had a whole ethos of communal living and ended up actually setting up a, a huge business empire and selling the town to the American Bridge Company in the early 20th century. Um, and the American Bridge Company renamed Ambridge after itself and brought the steel industry to town. And you had the whole ride through the 20th century of the steel industry, which ends in the in the 80s, uh, when American Bridge moves out of town, other steel mills shut down, and we have the last uh, 30 or so years, or 30 plus years, of, of a kind of that deindustrialized America experience that we all became so familiar with uh, in 2016. And then there was this one added wrinkle that, that, that uh, I just couldn't get out of my head, which is Ambridge didn't go with the flow in 2016. Mm. It's a former steel town, and it actually voted for Hillary Clinton. And so it goes against the, the, the political cliche, if you will, of, of these deindustrialized towns. And so I wanted to find out why. I wanted to find out how this town was, was getting battered by the, the health crisis and the economic crisis. And, and I wanted to try and ask a question, which was, you know, after four years of Donald Trump, do we know what the future is for these places? That, um, that he really made so many big economic promises to. So what was your answer that you found in this? 
Well, the answer you find in a lot of places is that it's damn complicated. Exactly. Right? And, and the answer is it's a town that is still caught between two different identities. There's a, a big chunk of people in town who really are hanging on to the industrial past. Uh, but what we've seen this year is the kind of last major industrial employers are, are shutting down, um, uh, partly as a result of, of, of the coronavirus downturn, uh, and things aren't looking good on the industrial front. And on the other side is this idea that Ambridge, which is 25 minutes from downtown Pittsburgh, maybe can reinvent itself as a bedroom community. And there's all sorts of challenges with that. The school system isn't as good as it should be. The, the property mix is, these are old factory, it's an old factory town, it's a lot of old factory houses that aren't necessarily going to attract a young family uh, today. And you've got a Main Street, Merchant Street, it's called, uh, which is still just dominated by vacant buildings. In fact, it's it's cheaper today to rent a storefront on Merchant Street in Ambridge to store your excess uh, stuff uh, than it is to rent a storage unit on the outskirts of town, which is kind of a, a damning economic statistic. So it's we don't know what the future is for a place like that, but we do know that the kind of the easy answers and the promises that Donald Trump made in, 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 in 2016, that he was going to bring the steel mills back, that he was going to reinvigorate these places, haven't necessarily come true, and that's been exposed by the, the, the pandemic. So, so, Sean, let's zoom out here just a little bit because the real significance here is, is Pennsylvania, right? And so how does Ambridge and... Beaver County, which Ambridge sits in, play into the larger role that the state might play in the election? Sure. So Beaver County is hugely important. Uh, Ambridge was a blue dot in a red county in 2016. Uh, In 2016, Trump wins Beaver County by about 15,000 votes. That's about a third of his margin in Pennsylvania overall, which he won by just under 45,000 votes. and this time around, he really needs to hold that margin in Beaver County, even build on it, uh, to, to hold Pennsylvania again. And at the same time, it's a place that is in Ambridge. Is, this is true of Ambridge, which voted for Hillary Clinton, as it is in, in broader Beaver County. That's still incredibly socially conservative. Uh, that has an older population, largely white population. Um, and they see stuff happening in America that Donald Trump is pointing out to them and is, is now running on this whole law and order message, this whole pointing to the, the, um, the protests, the violent protests in Portland and, and uh, some of the violent protests in, that we've seen in Kenosha, Wisconsin uh, in the past week or so. And, um, and he's saying, you know, be warned, America. And, and that message resonates. And I was hearing that. I was hearing local Democrats, a guy in particular, Mike McCulloch, who's the, the council president there in Ambridge and the, 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 the chair of the local Democratic Party, who was really worried as far back as June that Joe Biden and the Democrats were going to lose voters in this really important part of, 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 uh, of Pennsylvania uh, because of uh, the law and order uh, message that Trump was, was, was putting out there and because the message that a lot of progressive Democrats were pushing on defunding the police mm. was alienating to a lot of these centrist Democrats. The net result is we've seen that that has come true, um, unfortunately, for the Democrats and for Joe Biden. Uh, we have seen uh, Biden's lead overall in Pennsylvania evaporate from 10 or more points 
uh, in July to as little as one to three points, according to a Monmouth University poll that's out today. Yeah, it's uh, it is all coming down to the wire. That is for sure, and it's going to be decided in places just like you write about. It's part of a special issue all about the election, all about the electorate. As Joel Weber, who joined us from Massachusetts, pointed out, he's the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. The writer Sean Donnan, senior trade and globalization reporter for Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome back to Bloomberg Business Week. We're going to talk a little bit about the retail landscape coming up a little bit later this hour. A glimmer of hope there, but not a lot of hope if you are looking at what's happening in America's food banks. This is a story that is a must-read, but troubling to say the least. It's part of a special series that Bloomberg News is doing on food. Happy to have with us, uh, back with us, one of our top economic reporters, someone who really distills down the key economic issues of the day. One of our go-tos, Katerina Sariva, Federal Reserve and economics reporter on the phone from Houston. I have to say, Katerina, this story And it pairs with, I think, something that we've all seen, pictures and video of what's going on at food banks across the country being overwhelmed. What's going on? What did you find? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of a a heartbreaking story, really. Um, But yeah, I mean, this pandemic, as it rages on, um, it's really laid bare this problem of food insecurity, which already was an issue in the U.S., even though it is the world's richest country, as we know. Um, But really, right now, it's it's coming to a head, especially with the um, extra unemployment benefits having, you know, mostly expired. People are just are are really struggling as they are either without work or have had their hours reduced or struggling with a rising food inflation, which, of course, is an issue. So um, about a tenth of Americans right now are unable to get the food they need. Mm. And what I think is 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 terribly interesting in this. And the the journal actually had a a headline out today in one of the articles that was like, it depends who you ask. Like some are getting richer and then some are are going to food banks. And that sort of distinction between the two. What's also interesting is those that have been in the middle that this pandemic has put over to the other side. Like people who would never have thought they'd have to go to a, a, a food bank to get food are now find themselves online. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you see that, you know, I, I, I went to a few um, food bank distributions um, in Minnesota for this story. And, um, you know, it was really stark at one of them. And they're doing a lot of like drive through ones now because of COVID. And at one of them, I mean, you, you see cars that, you know, are, are fairly nice looking family cars, you know, I mean, maybe you know, not the first thing you associate with people that are really struggling to meet this basic need, but it just goes to show that it's really impacting a wide um, variety of Americans right now. Um, And it has tipped a lot of those folks that are kind of in the, that were in the middle um, into a place of of really um, um, struggling to, to to meet this need. Katarina, one of the things you do really well in this story, and I think it's such an important piece of this, is to talk about the disconnect and the cognitive dissonance between these lines that we're seeing and this huge need, people being tipped, as you say, into food insecurity at a time when we also see pictures and read about farmers 
dumping milk and plowing over excess crops help us sort of synthesize that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's really a, an issue, um, as one food bank executive put it to me, of, of food connectivity um, in the system. So uh, what you have is a lot of farms and, you know, these big um, kind of big corporations in farming um, are used to selling uh, mostly to restaurants, right? These big buyers that often work with with middleman companies um, to buy that that product from farms. And that, of course, as we know, has massively declined right now. Um, but the infrastructure just isn't there uh, to get it to people in need. Um, so, you know, usually uh, the consumer goes to a grocery store to, to get food. But if you all of a sudden can't afford that, um, then you need to go to somewhere like a food bank. Um, so it is that's where you get these images of kind of um, what's happening on farms where they all of a sudden don't have a market for their product. Yet we know that there are a ton of Americans that need it. But it's just this kind of supply chain issue where they're unable to, to get it from one to the other. I will say that the USDA has set up a program that um, the food banks around the country are using where they the USDA buys directly from farmers to kind of ease some of this um, surplus that they're having. And then that food um, is given directly to people via the food banking system. So that is kind of a, a positive in this. In your work, are there certain states that are worse off? Yeah, so food insecurity really, it usually is worse in the southeast. Um, I think Mississippi uh, tends to be the the state where you see the highest rates. Um, You know, again, uh, a poor state in many circumstances. Of course, this is also felt along racial lines, and Mississippi has a high percentage of black Americans. So, um, you know, that's another reason why you see high rates of food insecurity there. Um, Minnesota, for example, it is usually one of the least food insecure states. Um, mm. But right now they're looking at one in eight Minnesotans, um, you know, ha- having trouble getting the food they need. Well, it's a really great piece of reporting, as you said, uh, very rightly, Katarina. It's a heartbreaking one. And especially when you see these inconsistencies and, as I said, sort of the cognitive dissonance of trying to understand why this is happening in the wealthiest country in the world. Check it out. It's part of a special series that Bloomberg News is doing on food, American food banks being overwhelmed by the worst crisis ever. The reporter, Katarina Sariva, Federal Reserve and Economics reporter, joining us on the phone from Houston. And Alex, you know, as a business journalist, as business journalists, we understand this. Um, but the human side of it is, is really... Um, difficult so difficult yeah it is and you know talking about being a business journalist is that you put it together with say the fed Mm -hmm. okay keeping rates low how is that going to help these people who are on a line for food yeah like and and maybe it does i just don't know what that is because that's the problem right in that the other part of the population is just getting richer so how, how does it work and can the government, you know, is there a, a feasible and effective way for the government to step in? And Katarina talked about the FDA being able to do that. And that's certainly an important step. But is there something, you know, at federal, state, local level that can bridge this gap and, and, and connect all this up? Because it's really, yeah. it's, it's tough to see. That's for sure. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. Yeah, how about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey.
Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, time for the drive to the close. Back with us, Alan Lance, director of research at LanceGlobal.com, president of Alan B. Lance and Associates, joining us on the phone from Toledo, Ohio. Alan, really nice to have you here with Alex and myself. What's going on out in Toledo? What's it like out there? Well, uh, from, from, from a COVID-19 standpoint, uh, you know, uh, we're open and, and um, you know, do, doing well. Uh, uh, Michigan's still, you know, struggling, but uh, yeah. we started up the hockey here a couple months ago, and we got some Michiganders coming down to, to use our rinks and what have you. So hopefully the rest of the country opens up and, and we continue to see, you know, better numbers, uh, you know, for, from an economic standpoint uh, uh, with these states opening up and, and getting this COVID-19 behind us. Yeah, your governor has gotten pretty good reviews, I, I feel like. Is, is, does that track him? Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. We're, we're one of the first to close, um, and um, we're actually one of the uh, big influencers in, in closing down March Madness uh, yeah. because a couple of the Mid-Am teams uh, uh, had had some uh, positive uh, test results and what have you and, and uh, decided to to really make a push that uh, and uh, the March Madness, uh, which which is a billion dollar decision there, so so uh, uh, Ohio is in the forefront of that at least. So moving to markets, um, <laughs> you take a look at uh, at what we're looking at for Dow is up almost two percentage points, S and P up one point six, Nasdaq up by one, reversing earlier losses. Um, are you buying into this uh, continued melt up rally? Alex, what we're doing is we're we're participating in the market. Uh, I still uh, like tech. Uh, we're just not chasing. I mean, uh, you know, these high flyers like Tesla. I'd rather buy tertiary, uh, you know, companies that can benefit from EV, but not actually chase, you know, Tesla, you know, over five hundred dollars a, you know, a share. And I, I think there's opportunity. The interesting thing is uh, when when there was good news on the vaccine front, tech went down because they're thinking, oh, not not that much stay at home and and uh, you know, uh, you know, we'll get the physical stores open, et cetera, et cetera. But I think people are realizing that even with a vaccine, if it comes by year end, Alex, it's going to be a situation where it's going to take a long time to distribute and and really get uh, to a point where we're back to normal. And and because of that, I, I think that's why you're seeing today, like even the utilities that we're buying getting more defensive in the in the past month are up over three percent, and yet tech is up as well so you don't see this you know dichotomy of of the defensive issues moving up when tech is is moving down and and uh you're you're seeing a, a broad base uh, uh advancement which which i think is good but uh you know we're, we're you know being more on the conservative side we're not chasing uh, these high flyers and rather participate in other ways so one of the other reasons we think a lot about Ohio uh, is because it tends to be pretty pivotal in presidential elections, as you well know. Um, how do you factor the election in here at this point, Alan? 
We actually bought this summer some some companies, uh, real asset companies, uh, more inflation hedges, and and even uh, like a Constellation Brands when it was uh, uh, trading on, on the lower half of its range, uh, as more of a play in case uh, uh, you, you get more of a, a Democratic uh, uh, swing, uh, whether it's in the Senate or, or White House or both. And and uh, I, I think uh, you know that's a good strategy. I think planning here the rest of the year. Uh, on uh, the tax aspect and also on uh, strategy on, on what to own is going to be as critical as, as anything. And low interest rate environment and the Fed last week talking about how it's going to stay low for possibly another entire presidential cycle, uh, I think, is, uh, you know, bodes well for this you know, rush of money's going into stocks, but uh, uh, you always have to be careful when 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 you get a flood of money in, and and people aren't looking at valuations as much as just owning uh, the the investment because there's uh, very little alternatives. So. When you take a look at tech, you mentioned you still like it. There has been a lot written in the last couple of days about um, how. Uh, hedging and uh, options and gamma is all leading to the rally in stocks, meaning that if I'm an investor and I want to go buy a million shares of Tesla, uh, and if I'm Goldman Sachs, I have to hedge that, and then that creates sort of upward momentum and upward pressure on all of this uh, for the options market, I should say. Um, Do you buy into that, or do you think that this is like a real fundamental, sustainable rally here? Well, I don't know how fundamental it is, Alex. I, I, I think it, you know, it, it's a real rally. I mean, there is a, a you know, incredible amount of money on the sidelines, and, and that, you know, uh, is coming in into the forefront and into equity. So, so it is a real rally. Uh, but you know, it gets to a point where you know, if you get the momentum and, and you get, uh, uh, you know, these hedges, people feel more comfortable to put more and more money in without understanding the risk, and 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 they're. You know, the higher it goes up, I think the more chance you have of, a, of a, you know, a pullback that that could be substantial, and that's why I don't think uh, you know your your listeners want to uh, chase you know the the high flyers, and and if anything, if you're over concentrated in those issues, maybe reduce you know those positions and and look at uh, you know items that that haven't moved. I mean, the the uh, Russell 2000 has really uh, performed as as well as some of these high flyers. I mean, it's amazing to me what some of these small companies have done. You know, you look at a Tupperware, it was a dollar a share, and, and it's over 20 now. Um, and, uh, you know, to me, it's starting to show signs of exuberance and and, and just the, this theme investing where, you know, stay at home, et cetera, and, and, you know, with what's going on with Robinhood and, and yeah. more and more novice investors getting in, I, I think that trend might push it higher, but uh, it, it's more of a, a time to be concerned and really look at the fundamentals instead of just looking at, you know, how much money you made and, and the momentum aspect of it. All right. Good advice as always. Thank you so much. Alan Lance, Director of Research at LanceGlobal.com, President of Alan B. Lance and Associates, joining us on the phone from Toledo, the Robin Hood effect and that sort of stay-at-home theme. I mean, we certainly have seen that, and we were talking about it yesterday uh, when it comes to Zoom, you know, and uh, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm there. One could say some of it's warranted given how much they've been able to penetrate that, how much of our behavior has changed, but you do tend to see people looking around and saying, all right, what fits this theme? I know, but whenever I feel like we turn to gamma as a way to explain a rally, I, I don't know. It always worries me because I'm like, are, are, are we that skeptical of the rally here, guys? Or are we, we past this gamma thing? Guess not. What does gamma ultimately mean? 
So it basically just means that if I'm an investor and I'm going to have a call option on a stock, the broker has to go and buy the stock. <laughs> yeah. So in, in, in essence, to hedge themselves. And so right. that just leads to this feedback loop. It had, Right. It has this looping effect that, uh, yeah, I mean, and certainly we're, we're seeing a lot of those looping effects. It feels like going back to that, uh, that retail theme that we've it been It sounds about. cooler if you, call, you just say gamma. Just say gamma. And just yeah. pretend you know what you're talking about. Yeah. Battlestar Galactica and whatnot. In any case, <laughs> we're getting to the close. This is Bloomberg. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.